Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest has a long and storied career in public relations, having worked in the political arena for an Oregon congressman, insurance commissioner, and two Oregon governors. He has also directed nonprofit communications and marketing for Project Open Hand, the Bay Area's largest AIDS nonprofit. And after all that, he decided to go just a little bit smaller and managed to fit in 15 years heading up PR for Nike. Lee Weinstein is considered one of Oregon's most experienced and creative public relations professionals in global brand PR employee, political, and education communications, public affairs, and issues in crisis management. Lee is also the author of Write, Open, Act, an intentional life planning workbook. We'll talk about all that and some more coming up. So here's Lee. How did your career in PR happen? I actually majored in political science at Lewis and Clark College. We get a lot of Coloradans that come to Lewis and Clark. And my first job out of school was working for uh, Ron Wyden, who was uh, just elected on the House side as a member of Congress. And I got an internship, a paid internship in D.C., went back there. And while I was there, got to see his press operation um, going strong and really was fascinated by how they worked with the media, how he worked with the media, how he did constituent mail and newsletters. So it was all of a sudden this connection between communications, which I'd always been interested in since I was a little kid and published and sold door to door a newspaper in my neighborhood that I wrote. Wait, 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 wait. Let's not just cruise (laughs) right through that. How how old were you when you did this newspaper? I was uh, in sixth grade and I started writing this uh, paper. I I I borrowed my dad's typewriter and taught myself how to hunt and peck. And now, and that's how I type today is two fingers, uh, learned, learned there. And then, um, I wrote these articles and laid them out. And he had these, I don't know if you remember Letra set, but he had these letters. You could make your own headline really fun. And, uh, I sold it for, I think a quarter door to door, but then, you know, ultimately, you know, when I got back to DC, I loved being in Washington and loved working in politics. That was, and I stayed in politics, the early part of my career, but I got to see this, how comms, how PR, how communications and politics all melded. And, and then I moved uh, uh, into public relations directly, um, working uh, as the head of communication for the State Department of Insurance and Finance, and ultimately moved over to the governor's office. 
So when, when going back to the seminal stuff, when you did the paper, Lee, were you <laughs> like Scoop Weinstein? So I'm picturing you with the hat, with the card in it, you know, Scoop <laughs> Weinstein doing the local news. When you mentioned comms, communications are yes. so fraught these days, Lee, when you were an innocent in, in sixth grade doing this, was it, was it, you know, Mrs. Brown's dog is lost kind of thing? Or were you looking to, were you an early muckraker? What, what was your, well, what was your approach? Actually, it was it was interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure, and I don't have those early copies. I when we moved to Portland, I continued doing this on my on Cable Street. One thing I did do, I had gone out for a bike ride, and back in those days in Salem, Oregon, you could go anywhere at age 11 on your bike and just kind of pedal around. Well, we had this really stinky pulp and paper mill downtown in Salem, the largest employer outside of state government in Salem was Boise Cascade. And while I was riding around their their pulp mill, I discovered these holding ponds behind uh, the pulp mill right along the Willamette. And they were disgusting. And I'm like, what in the hell is that? So I took pictures with my Kodak Instamatic, uh, did write an article about it for the, the paper. And ultimately, you know, over time, and I know I had nothing to do with this, but ultimately the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality Uh, got on the case and they had to clean that up and they had to pay many, many, many fines. Uh, Ultimately, it's now now in a big apartment complex where that pulp and paper mill once was. The Weinstein Apartments, no? Did you get... The Weinstein Apartments. Weinstein. Weinstein. Is it it Weinstein? Am I saying it incorrectly? Weinstein, yes. Weinstein. Okay, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, My my grandfather, Archie, went by Weinstein. His wife went by Weinstein. So, yeah. Well, it's why they didn't stay married. Frankenstein or Frankenstein from Mel Brooks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, with Marty Feldman. Yes, what hump? Very good. Okay, so you, there were echoes, or there was. There, I was just picturing Encyclopedia Brown stories as a kid, reading about a kid like you who had the impetus yeah. to go and do something cool like this, Lee. And I wouldn't sh- sell yourself short that you weren't involved somehow in ultimately cleaning up that cleaning well, up that toxic Congress, mess. I wrote a congressional delegation. I wrote Mark Hatfield and Bob Packwood, Al Ullman. I wrote them all letters. They were very nice and wrote me letters as a ki- As a kid, you did this. In sixth grade. So, yeah. and this is, Lee, this is, I'm getting to something here, Mr. Weinstein. <laughs> uh, so, th- th- this was just you, right? I mean, yeah. this, was, this wasn't yeah. your parents saying, hey, Lee, why don't you write no. a letter? This was you. Now, for some reason, I, I decided to do it. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it started with, you know, my dad uh, being gone and at work and he was taking night classes then I was using his typewriter and eventually learned you know learned how to type and then I'm like well what am I going to do now and somehow I scratched my head and came up with this idea of the newspaper I called it and uh, so I published the newspaper I took I saved up uh, allowance and went down into downtown Salem and printed it off at they they had a print shop in downtown Salem that had an early Xerox machine. This was, you know, this was 1969. I copied it and stapled it with my dad's stapler and then took it door to door. And I had, um, you know, some neighbors that were nice and paid, you know, went and got a quarter and and bought it from me and because uh, they felt sorry for me, you know, no <laughs> doubt. And then uh, others who, you know, basically said thanks, but no thanks. But it was a fun enterprise. I just love the initiative that you did this. You had this inherent entrepreneurial spirit as a kid to do yeah. something like this, right? So it's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like such a leap. Ultimately, you have your own firm, your own public relations firm, right? There's a great book out there called Wishcraft. Um, that's a, an excellent career book that's um, it's probably 20, 20 plus years old. But one of the things that was really interesting is at a certain point, I was looking at my career. I'm like, what do I want to do? I'm like, do I want to stay in politics uh, or something else? One of the things that she asked is, what were things that you enjoyed doing as a little kid? Working on this career book, I, I remembered all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I used to publish the newspaper. Um, I've always been interested in, in communications. I also remembered then um, that I wanted to, uh, in sixth grade, I was thinking what I'd do as a career is I would buy a camper and become a journalist and drive around to different communities around the United States and write about different communities. So it was kind of a two and two moment when they, it, thinking about what did you like to do as a kid? And, and I had this political thing I was doing and all of a sudden I was like, oh, 
crap, I've always been a communicator. I've always been interested in communications. And then if you look at what PR is, PR is about relationships with your public and how do you form those relationships and what tools do you use? Well, obviously, a lot of what you're doing is you're communicating. It could be in person. It could be through the media. In today's day and age, it could be using social media, paid media, lots of different ways. But it's about communicating and communicating well, establishing and maintaining relationships. Politics is a lot of that. You know, good politicians know how to connect with their constituents and listen to them. Going from the early Scoop Weinstein days, when you're doing <laughs> your thing, Lee, unfettered, right? It's just pure, straight from the heart. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to D.C. The way you're describing it is pretty even-handed. What was your sense of the ma- manipulation of communication as you were, I, I'm assuming you were exposed to that at various levels and in different, at various intensities while you were in mm-hmm. D.C.? Mm-hmm. And what, was, what was that like when you saw the message being manipulated? It was a little bit more of an innocent age back then. Back then, um, you know, it was really an honor to be in public service. And and we honored people in public service. I mean, you would write letters to the the Honorable Marco Hatfield, our U.S. senator, who was so fantastic, and a and a Republican senator who I support, even though I'm a good Democrat, uh, Kennedy Democrat. But you know, back then, what was really interesting? I mean, Senator and he's now Senator Wyden, who I worked for. He was then Congressman Wyden. You know, Ron came up. He was before he became, took that position. He was the head of the Oregon Gray Panthers. He has a genuine way of communicating with people. And he likes being out in public. And I would say one of the things I learned about him in communications is he communicates in a very frank, um, very folksy sort of, uh, of tone. He's really easy to understand. So you know, I had to learn that. I had to learn how do you do that and sign every letter with warm regards from him. You know, it was very personal. And he also, and he still does this. He just had how many, he's well over a thousand town halls he's had. So he comes back to Oregon constantly, first as a member of the House and now in the Senate. But, you know, he's out listening to people. He knows what he's going to, how he's going to answer a lot of his questions. But he's also uh, someone who um, takes action. So if somebody raises something that um, that needs follow up, he's got a staffer. He'll say, "Hey, let's let's talk about that. You know, please go talk to Tanya over here and on my staff, and she'll follow up with you." The thing that he was, you know, probably best at too was, you know, figuring out what's going to make what's going to you know be of interest to the news media, to the earned media, the free media out there. So newspaper, television stations. And and the other thing I really admire still greatly about him is, you know, he's able to look and say, here's you know, here's what people care about. Here's what's happening, you know, in the national discourse back then. This was around 82. The Nation at Risk report came out talking about um, the challenges our public school system was facing. Part of the issue being keeping great teachers in the classroom. And, you know, he came in and, and he had a bill title in his head, the Talented Teachers Act. And he turned to me, I was his edu- education uh, aide, and he said, go figure out legislation that would really make a difference to get teachers to stay in the classroom. So we came up with a, a grant program to help teachers become teachers if they would stay in the classroom for a, a certain amount of time, the Carl Perkins grants. And today, you know, what's very different today, obviously, is the fracturing of the news media back, you know, back then, you know, everybody watched, you know, one of the three network TV broadcasts, Walter Cronkite, or there was more sort of focused media where people would go and we'd all sort of get the same information. Today, it's so fractured. And depending on your political perspective, you go to lots of different places um, and then you've got other other means of means of communication, be it Facebook or Twitter or, or other uh, platforms. It's it's very different than the, the world I grew up in. From the early days of hunting and pecking on your dad's yes. Selectric, yes. I really love hearing the enthusiasm for Ron Wyden that you can't conceal. Yeah. It's beautiful yeah. uh, oh. o- over decades. And, and yeah. so I'm sensing that what you experienced and what you're sharing with us now was from Ron, genuine and authentic. Very, mm-hmm. very, very. And it still is. He's actually turned out to be a great U.S. Senator, because he he's stuck to his his methods. I mean, he's he he's back here listening to people all the time. 
he's he's always challenged the authorities about well you know what about this what about that and then he's able to legislate based on that i mean he really was trying to get a, the vote at home bill passed obviously the house uh, passed something uh, similar to that last night uh, but he's been he's been working on that forever uh, he was the first I believe U.S. senator elected by mail because uh, Oregon's had vote by mail here since the early to mid seventies. He is very authentic. I mean, he gets stuff done, uh, which I really like about him, as opposed to just people who pontificate or you know co-sign bills and and nothing happens. Um, he's um, I think he's really effective. Is he able to, as a communicator, Lee? I would say reach across the aisle or or. Mm-hmm cast a wide net and bring, I mean, uh, horrible mixed metaphors here, bring everybody into his tent. I mean, is he able to? Yes, he is. You know, one of the things, I'll tell you two stories. When we, when we had the talented teachers act, one of the things he did, you know, normally back then you would send out a dear colleague letter and talk about your legislation. And then, you know, education aid would just, you know, talk to the member and then call and, and add their name to the bill. That's so. That's a quick sketch of the pro. That's the inner workings right there, Lee. Yeah, right. That's well. That yeah. That's how. That's how Congress worked uh, in the eighties. You know. But one of the things that was really cool about Ron is he had the bill and he went over and sat on the House floor all day um, and got people as they were walking by. He talked about their bill and asked them to sign on. And all of a sudden, he had hundreds of members on his bill because he, he would just pigeonhole them. He was relentless. You know, and that's the type of extra sort of mile he goes. He does work uh, still today, reach across the aisle a lot, um, sometimes to the consternation of the person on this end of the microphone. But he'll go out and he'll get Rand Paul to, to, to co-sponsor a piece of legislation with him. Um, on the voting bill that he introduced last session, Amy Klobuchar was one of the, the other key sponsors with him. Uh, who was a uh, a candidate for president, and he often gets uh, success because he's reached out and gotten members from the, from the other side to to join him. At the core of it, Lee, it seems that the authenticity has legs that it has mm-hmm. translated across decades. I mean, this has turned into a widen mm-hmm. for, widen for whatever kind of campaign piece, which which uh, it was not the intention. But again, I love your enthusiasm. It's clear to me that it's genuine. So yeah. starting back with your paper, you go to uh, Washington, you, yeah. you come away with this, okay, you can stay true to your true north. Is that, yeah. is, is that fair a little bit? Because that sounds highly improbable to me now these days. <laughs> well, you know, I think it, it does come da- down to, um, you know, what are your personal values and, and can you stick to them? I've, I mean, I've always been interested in education. It was really an honor to work on education issues uh, for uh, Congressman Wyden then. I you know, worked in education. I worked at Lewis and Clark in the admissions office. Um, and, you know, today at our PR agency, we work with a host of different educational entities, uh, starting from Head Start all the way up through um, through college and university level. And is so, this, you know, beca- is this because these- it's a passion of yours, Lee? It's a passion, it- yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. No, I think if you want to better the world, it really starts with education and and having great access to education wherever you are, be it uh, in urban areas or rural areas. I think everybody needs to have access to great education. And then you got to look at what are the other things you value? Do you value human relationships, honesty, trust? Do you value the environment? Are those areas you want to focus on? You know, it's been obviously a crazy, crazy, crazy political generation we're in right now. It's, and it's certainly not over. You know, ultimately, it comes down to, you know, how are you going to be and are you going to be consistent with your with your values. And even when the going gets tough, stick by them. Obviously, we've all been influenced by um, lots of people in our lives who's taught us those values, be they great, great teachers, great grandparents, parents, you know, friends we've met along the way. But I think that consistency that I do think, quite honestly, that authenticity is what it's all about right now. And I think, you know, for any organization, or person communicating right now, I think we've got to be our authentic selves, our authentic organizations and people and and be direct. Now you say, I think that authenticity is the thing right now, which Mm -hmm. 
kind of makes it sound like, oh, it's in vogue, but it sounds to me, mm-hmm. Lee, like this has been a through line mm-hmm. in, in your career, in your in your path, in your trajectory. When you left DC, you did what? Where did you go? I went uh, into the admissions office at Lewis and Clark, which was my alma mater and uh, which I loved greatly. They also were quite uh, generous with me from a financial aid perspective. So I'm, I will always be uh, true to my school. So I've let, got, it was wonderful working there. I worked, worked there for about three years in admissions and recruited students. And I've got working in higher ed is just one of the great careers out there. It's one of my favorites that I've ever done. Um, so I did that for, for a while, um, did a tour um, in state government, back in politics, and then what was uh, interesting at the at the end of my political days, um, I moved into the nonprofit world. I my wife at the time got a position in San Francisco as a professor at San Francisco State, so we moved there. I got a job with Project Open Hand, which at that time was the largest AIDS agency in the Bay Area. And they were the first feeding organization in the world for people with AIDS and HIV. So um, that was also one of my favorite favorite career uh, opportunities uh, as well. And then moved after that back up to Portland, wanted to have a second child, couldn't live on a nonprofit salary uh, with my wife not working. So I got a job at Nike and uh, was at Nike for 15 years before leaving there to start a PR agency. Uh, Melinda is your wife, yes? Yes, and my she, final wife. Yeah, you're, you're fine. Was, you're not fi- the, was not the professor wife. Oh, was not the professor wife. Okay. No. Okay. No. So what was, and your ex-wife then was, what was she teaching? Theater. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Very talented theater actress. Uh, writer and uh, and professor. You guys move on. She's teaching theater. Yeah. Early days of AIDS. I was involved with APLA when oh, we lived in Los good. Angeles. So yeah, lots of lo- amazing organization and yep. lots of lots of canned food drives in, in front yep. of a lot of supermarkets in West yep. Hollywood and around Hollywood. And just just yeah. a great boots on the ground operation. Great and great celebrities helping too. They yes, got, they got Jennifer Hudson involved and others. They were amazing. Yeah, it was just that there was a real sense. I'm sure with just wherever you were, it was this was truly, but it was there was a real sense of community, and yeah, it, it was it Big was time. it was so important. Those are fond memories for me too. Okay, so then you make a jump from politics, from nonprofit, mm-hmm. to a very for profit kind of company, <laughs> Nike. How does Nike happen? It was uh, luck and timing. Uh, I worked with a woman in state government who had gotten to Nike K. Bryant um, uh, and was heading internal communications, was really their first internal communications director. And I called her out of the blue and said, hey, we're, I'm going to move back to Oregon. I'd, anything going on in Nike, I'd love to work there. And she said, you know, it's so funny. I'm writing your job description right now. And, and actually, now I'm glad you asked this question, Jeff. And she was writing a job description for the person to write their employee newspaper. No, um, come yeah, on. So write and desktop publish their employee newspaper. So uh, she Scoop Weinstein to, lives again. He's I back. Right, and I, you know, I've never put that together until this, <laughs> this interview is, with you. Lee, this is why I'm here. Okay. This is, <laughs> there you go. This is why we're doing so I, this. I started at Nike. It was a 2,000 person, $2 billion company way back then. Nike is and how old at this point, Lee? Because Nike, Nike that was, uh, that was 90. They were 20 years old. And then what was so much fun is I got to interview all these people who were on their way up at Nike and then write about them, take their picture. You know, was use Quark Express to, uh, oh, to yeah. uh, oh, yeah. lay it all out. Early desktop but, publishing, know. yeah. And then I also, you know, I did some scoopy things too. So Nike was not great at, um, soccer then, uh, or what we, the, what the Europeans call football, football and yep. most of the world calls football. Um, so I actually interviewed a lot of people about why, why Nike wasn't great at football. A lot of people don't know that Nike's, one of Nike's very earliest shoes was a soccer cleat. Hang on, because I, I went to a, as, uh, as all good Jewish kids, I went to a summer camp, uh, <laughs> and the owner of my camp was the track coach for CW Post College uh-huh. on Long Island. He was, he had some kind of relationship with Phil Knight. This is, I'm talking 72. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Nike, yep. Nike started when? You said 20. 
70 or so it was Nike start yeah Nike um Nike actually started there's a debate but 72 is the official start date they were getting going you know Phil Knight founded uh he was a Cleveland high school graduate uh University of Oregon middle distance runner and he co-founded Nike with his track coach Bill Bowerman um, Bowerman, they originally right. started yeah. selling tiger shoes they were a distributor for tiger. tiger yes tiger on the west coast yes um and then tiger they were so successful tiger took the distributorship back and they they were left without product but had it had an infrastructure and also had the insights bowerman was constantly looking at how to make running shoes um that were lighter that were faster and they could also perform well on Oregon tracks. A lot of Oregon tracks then had pumice surfaces. So these leather shoes people were running in uh, would get all flabby in the rain. And then these wonderful little pumice pieces of, uh, of uh, pumice dirt or rock would get in your shoe. It's like, oh, that's really fun to run in. So Bowerman was this you know, incredible tinkerer who um, one day poured rubber in his wife's waffle iron when she would, had gone to church and came up with the idea of the waffle soul. So it was, really it was Bowerman, that not Phil, right? That, that did the waffle thing. Yeah, Bowerman did that. Phil knew that Bowerman was this incredible innovator. And so the two of them, and talk about authenticity, the two of them were at an indoor track meet at Memorial Coliseum in Portland. Actually, beforehand, they were at the top of the Cosmopolitan Hotel in, on the east side of Portland. They shook hands uh, and both invested, invested $500 each to start Nike. And that's how, that's how it got going, that their partnership. When Tiger went away, um, Phil... Uh, and Bill decided to start their own company, and and uh, there was a whole process that where they went through trying to come up with what are we going to call this company, um, and where Nike came from, and then they hired uh, Carolyn Davidson, a PSU graphics person teacher, to come up with some logos, and the one uh, Phil hated the least was <laughs> uh, was the swoosh. So that's how they did it. I I hate this one the least. So that's I hate this one the least. <laughs> exactly, that's Phil. But it, he wanted something that looked like motion, uh, that looked fast. She came up with the swoosh. So he likes the swoosh, and Nike just went along with that. Or where? Where? Yeah, Phil said, well, "Let's go with that." So that's that's. Uh, but she had come with. Did they have the name already, or or Carolyn came with the name? Well, no, or, Nike. Uh, Phil wrote his uh, autobiography about five years ago called Shoe Dog. And it's a really wonderful book about the origins of Nike. A lot of us who worked at Nike didn't know some of these stories. Here's Lee Weinstein's reading list right now, folks. Just so we and I, I look, yep. Wishcraft, Wishcraft, which is by Barbara A. Share, Wish, Witchcraft, sure. right? Yeah, close. So close. you were, yeah, no, you were good, you were good. Because I, I got you going into the Wayback Machine here, yeah. and it's early. Yeah. And then we have Phil Knight's uh, Phil Knight's autobiography, right? Uh, which is Shoe Dog. Okay, so, exactly. Right, nice. So they needed to come up with a name. They were looking for investors, people to put up money to help them uh, buy products, um, get it to market, and talking about authenticity. I mean, I'm sure uh, your friend met him. Wouldn't surprise me at a track meet. They, yes, exactly. Yeah, they would sell. Phil would sell, and Phil and other people would sell shoes out of the back of Phil's. I think it was. I don't know if it was a Dodge Dart. They would go to track meets and sell out of the back of cars, and they had a Volkswagen bus they used for a long time. They were coming up with this name. Phil called one of their sales guys, a guy named Jeff Johnson, who's one of the amazing early um, employees at Nike, who, who has some talk about great stories. Um, because he was on the East Coast, he had some more time to come up with this name, and they needed it by a, some sort of business meeting the next day. And Johnson came with it, up with the idea. He's like, okay, and this is you know, this is you know, late sixties. This is actually this is early seventies. Sorry, Johnson came up with this idea. It's like, okay, back then, you know, you had very successful companies like Kodak had K's in it. Um, Xerox, uh, again, two syllables, um, two X's in it. So he was like, okay, okay, let's see, what two syllable things? And then he came up with the Greek goddess of, of victory, uh, the goddess Nike, and came back and said, what about Nike? Luckily, it was available. The cool thing is, Phil originally, I can't remember how much he paid Carolyn Davidson, the graphic designer, for the swoosh. It might have been like $500. But when Nike went public in the early 80s, um, he brought her back out to campus. They had, I think, an employee gathering, and he pre presented her with some original stock. 
she did very well. I love that it was 500 bucks from Bowerman, from Phil. So $1,000 yeah. started this. Yeah. I, what's the market cap <laughs> yeah. of Nike yeah. today? Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and and the story that you're recounting, Lee, is exactly what Neil, this Neil Auerbach, uh, he would have runners from all over the world mm-hmm. for uh, for this track program, and he would come to camp with a duffel bag full of the, mm-hmm. the latest mm-hmm. sneakers, the latest shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember, his, you're saying Tiger. I have goosebumps because it's just taking me back to my childhood, but uh, he would have the Tiger t-shirts and Tiger shoes, and then he had these new Nike shoes. Yeah. Always had the coolest shoes, and but not, who knew Nike? And then yeah, who knew Nike? Who knew, who knew Nike? No, it was it, it was it was Adidas. It was Tiger shoes. They eventually became Asics. Really? Oh, Tiger became was, Asics. Yeah. Oh. And but it was really really Adi back then. Adi Dossler. I just told yeah, my kids this story. And then, and then you know Phil came. With, Phil basically, Phil wrote a. Uh, he went to Stanford to get his MBA, and he wrote a, uh, his thesis about producing um, athletic shoes um, in the Asia Pacific and how to basically how to beat Adidas. And then he went and did it. The heavens opened, smiled on Lee Weinstein yeah. and just said, hey, kid, bring your Selectric, do this thing. <laughs> I and- got to do this. The Nike World Record newspaper. <laughs> That's what it was called? Yep. We had employees help come up with the name and somebody came up with the Nike World Record, which was I always liked that name. And it was a physical paper, I'm assuming, at this point. It was point. a physical paper yeah. to begin, yeah. Awesome. And then uh, eventually it, uh, we, we took it online, but it was physical for a long time and big broadsheet, and uh, it, it was really fun. I mean, employees really got to – I think the best part about it is we did a lot of interviews um, with with people in, in all sorts of levels within the company about how they got there, what they were working on. I wrote that piece about soccer and how Nike would never be a truly global brand until it until it became number one in soccer. Is this heresy at the time, Lee, to well, do something I, like I this? Did get a, I did get a little, little in a little bit of trouble for that, oh. but but I interviewed all these people and they 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 uh, said these comments. Yeah. Um, and it certainly got our president then, Tom Clark, who I really like. He's a very good friend. But it was like it was a, it was a poke. It's like okay, if, we, if you guys really want to get at this, we got to get after soccer. And it wasn't just this sort of vanilla, you know, story on the front page of the Nike World Record. It was hey, here's what we got to do. Let's just say it was it was it was a little controversial. And lucky I didn't get fired. Lucky you didn't get fired. You wind up having a yeah. 15 year career. <laughs> I right? did. It was a wonderful career, and it was a great. It was a really great place to work, and uh, and I got to be there the entire time that Michael Jordan was playing for the Bulls and got his six rings, which was amazing. So, um, but you know, and then see the invention of all sorts of other uh, other sports and athletes. The WNBA kicked off. We had an event with Cheryl Swoops in New York, uh, which I'll never forget, and it was really fun. But you know, at a certain point. After 15 years, it was like, okay, do I want to do this the rest of my life? Uh, Do I want to finish my career here? Or do I want to do something else? I really felt like at that time, I wasn't done. And I wanted to take what I learned at Nike and do something with it. I took a lot of time to think about it. I actually wrote a whole story that the New York Times published about my exiting Nike. But I did a lot of deep soul searching. So the thing that I found then, I mean, I was 48 when I left Nike, I think. I really decided, you know, God, I'm, I'm going to leave here. What do I want to do? Lee, I'm going to cut you off because I just played, but it's the restless soul. In restless the ba- soul. Restless soul in the bathroom mirror. The bathroom mirror. Preoccupations. Here it is, September it 4th, is. 2010, with your byline, man. Yeah. Hey, no. hey Scoop, come on. This is pretty <laughs> well, good. This it was, is pretty it was good. very funny. I wrote that on a plane trip across country, and I'd forgotten I, I had written it. And then one of those days I was going through my computer to purge um, everything. And I, and I found this piece. I'm like, oh, what is this? This is pretty good. I finished it. And I thought, well, let's, let's just try the Times. Didn't think I would go there. I didn't think anybody would publish it. One of the things that is really important, another book in there, my uh, ex-wife actually turned me on to it. So let's give credit where credit's due, is a book called Letters to a Young Poet by Rainier Rilke, Rainier Maria Rilke. Uh, it's a very short book, him providing advice to an aspiring young poet. But one of the things he talks about there is how we all have to look inside for the answers. For me, leaving Nike, it's like, well, what do I want to do? Do I just want to jump to the next job? No, I, I've, what I really decided is I needed to 
really take some time for introspection and to figure out what I wanted to do next. We are the result of you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of millions years evolution. And we have these human lives and we are sentient um, and we have feelings. We're a pretty amazing species. Um, Sometimes we're, we're a little too much. If that's the case, then you know, let's use our time here really wisely. What do I want to do with this time I've been lucky enough to, to have in this human existence? And so that's, uh, that's really uh, led me to do that sort of soul searching around Nike and what I wanted to do next. And ultimately, I realized I've done PR for 15 years. I might as well leverage that further. So I started this PR business. And my wife, Melinda, luckily turned to me about a month into it and said, you know, you need some help. We've been running this together. It's really, it's, it's really a two-person managed organization with a really talented group of people that work with us. 14 years coming up on, uh, in October. Almost so, equal to your tenure at, at Nike. Um, at Nike, I went back and forth between internal communications, employee communications. It's also called external communications. So um, I worked um, in Oregon, in Beaverton, in the employee communications area. Then I moved back to New York, and I ran the New York PR office for Nike, then came back and ran PR in the US, and then ultimately finished my career back into internal communications as well as corporate responsibility communications. So communications around uh, supply chain, sustainability, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and and more. So probably had four different jobs I've never counted at Nike. Got to be there really through some just amazing times, and the you know, the company grew on a host of levels, uh, including you know, when I started. There was a two billion dollar company. When I left, it was seventeen billion, and now it's you know through the stratosphere. Extraordinary, and, uh, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, no, in very competitive place. Learned a ton. I mean, it sounds like you really did it all there, and then yeah. a perfect, a perfect time to look in the mirror and and have that kind of yeah. reassessment, and you move into your own shop and have a, what sounds like a great run. Still, the business is celebrating, about to celebrate its fourteenth anniversary. Yeah. You're you've got. Uh, client roster. Uh, you mentioned some of the educational clients, so things that are really in your passion sweet spot. Mm-hmm. It, has it been as fulfillingly to have your own business as not? Is it completely different? Yeah. No. Well, it is. I mean, you know, it, you know, it's it's a it's a whole new set of challenges and different challenges. What I would say is this has been extremely fulfilling. What I like a lot about working at, at an agency, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself too, is the subject matters change. So, you know, you might start off in the morning, you know, working on, you know, an education client. You know, we're working, we've been working with the University of San Diego, helping them um, during this COVID time, for instance. So you might, you might start there and then all of a sudden you switch over, you're working on something completely different. And so I really do like that. Um, Nike was a great foundation, learned a lot there. There's, I mean, you're, we're constantly learning. I think one of the things about PR um, as a profession is it's constantly about um, experiences. And from everything you do, you, you learn and, and do things more um, and, and differently and, and ideally better. As opposed to, you know, when you're working on the client side, you know, you live and live and breathe Nike and and sneakers and and accessories and equipment and and apparel and and that's you're just focused there. Though obviously, new things coming out every season, so it's been fascinating. And uh, and we've we're blessed. We worked with Nike for uh, many many years now. Uh, they called about a year after I quit and said, "Hey, could you help us?" But then we, you know, get calls out of the blue, and we've been working for the Archie Bray Foundation for the ceramic arts in uh, in Montana. They're one of the leading ceramic arts institutions in the world, and they're just amazing. And to be around artists and and creative people, it's just it's just it's just exhilarating. Some of the things that we get to learn from our clients, and we, you know, we collaborate. I mean, yeah, we give expert advice and and execute on things and plans. But what's been really gratifying is that with all of our clients, I mean, it's really a collaborative process. And, um, and we learn from each other 
um, constantly along the way. You said that it's collaborative and that it's uh, the flow goes back and forth. You're not just coming in yeah. and say, here's the Lee Weinstein system. This is what you need to do. Yeah. Because w- wipe your hands and off you go. Right, right. My sense is that the dynamism of the change in the marketplace and the broad array of your clients, just it's going to keep you on your toes and make you th- just sort of think fresh, right? Always. You've got to constantly think fresh. You've got to constantly come up with new and better ideas. On the other hand, too, I mean, I think one of the things you've got to look at is, you know, what what do we know really works? And really start at the end. Like, what does success look like? What is the audience um, looking for that you're that you're working uh, to communicate to or engage? Will this work or not? It's never been boring, which thank God. And Nike was never boring. I mean, that was the other p- fun part about Nike and being around sports was, you know, you just had no idea. I'll never forget the Sunday sitting here in Dufer, Oregon, um, at the Pastime Inn, having breakfast and watching Tiger win the Masters. And that Nike ball with the swoosh on it just pull right up to the cup and pause, you know, for its its photo moment, and then go into the cup. It's like, oh my God! It's like, I mean, you know, you'd have those those things happen with you know the athletes and then you know nike's uh you know nike very much today is about and and it has been from the very beginning about you know everybody's an athlete i'll never forget when when bill bowerman one of the great nike moments that uh, when i was there that happened was after bill bowerman passed we had a a gathering for him in the bo jackson sports and fitness center barbara bowerman his wife was there she just very slight, small woman. And she was there at this big podium. And she goes, you know, Bill believed if you have a body, you're an athlete. And we all went, holy cow, that's it. If you have a body, you're an athlete. And because, you know, Nike had some struggles, like when Jazzercise was happening and Reebok came and, you know, kicked Nike's ass in 86 or something. Dance, it's like, you know, it's like, well, dance isn't the sport. Well, hell yes, it is. And Barbara Bowerman just told us, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So any dancer is an athlete. So it was, it was one of those times that was like, oh, and so what's wonderful is Nike's got to think their brand mission is to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete with an asterisk by it in the world. And it takes you to, that asterisk takes you down to, if you have a body, you're an athlete, Bill Bowerman. And what was the ceramic place in Montana? Because that sounds... Uh, the Archie Bray Foundation Archie for Bray. the Ceramic Arts. Actually, they uh, they call themselves the Bray in, in, you know, internally all the time. And, the Bray. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and they're amazing. It sounds like, Lee, if I came to you as a, as a client that... Part of part of the sharing back and forth, part of the process to get to the messaging is I'm going to say to thine own self be true. The authenticity is that is that right? I mean, because yes, yeah, we, there are different modes. We have social media. Yes, we have to evolve, as you said. You know, you have to think fresh, but you have to also know what works. And it seems to me, just taking it back to where we started, that what works and what's missing so often is authenticity. Authenticity. It's true. And I think the other thing, too, is to, you know, ask you again to our earlier part of this conversation, ask yourself, are you sticking to your values? So, you know, the great Jim Collins book, Good to Great, you know, he talks about what, are, what happens to companies when they get into trouble? What should they do first? And he says, go look at your values, go look at your core values, get back to your core values. You know, and, and ultimately, you, you know, that's, you know, employees can relate to that. Your consumers, your your stakeholders can relate to um, to your core values as well. So I think it's it's that, and then you know, and I think today too. I mean, everybody's so their attention spans are so short. You know, I think we've got to just be direct. We've got to again be based in our values. It's it's tough because sometimes there are things that we can't talk about because they haven't been announced yet, or or there there issues behind them. But you, you want to be as direct and as, as truthful and ideally, you know, in that process, engage in a conversation, hear back from people, you know, what, what, you know, what questions do you have? What do you think of this? Um, and continue to evolve. I don't think we can do enough listening. Is that, so is that a key part of PR, Lee, that, that engage in a conversation component? Yeah. Yes, it is. You know, sometimes in PR, you know, clients don't have the 
resources to do a lot of listening or survey research. In some cases, though, they do, and that makes it all the better. Um, We always like doing a a combination of qualitative and quantitative um, research um, with clients if they have budget. Um, Even if they don't have budget, we would love to do the qualitative. So let's go talk to some employees. Let's go talk to members of the boards of directors. Let's go talk to your diverse stakeholder group out there and find out what they think. Let's talk to people who hate you or, or have a, or been offended by you and find out why. Because we need to know. And you can't just, just can't make this up. And what's amazing is, you know, through that listening, you, 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 you just get so much better. And you can also, you know, really revolutionize your organization by, by going out and, and hearing from folks. So the two-way conversation, air quotes, yep. is yep. really at the core of it. It's got to be got to be. Um, and it's not just a one-time thing too. I mean, I think, I think it's, um, and we talk about this in our life planning book. There's one of the things I love that if you've never read getting the love you want by Harville Hendricks. And, uh, actually originally he was the only author quoted, but his, his, or cited his wife actually, uh, was a co-author and, and in future, uh, editions was, uh, cited there, but, you know, he talks about reflective listening. Um, and in couples, uh, as, as, as a couple, and, you know, you've got to go out and listen to people and say, hear what you say, and then reflect back it to people. And we talk about this in our life planning work. It's like, did I hear you? Is this what you said? Did I get it all? What did I miss? And, and then go back and, and take that and improve and, and empathize with people. It's like, okay, I, I hear that Melinda was not happy the last year at Nike. She needed to get out. So I had to, I had to hear that. Okay. You, you didn't want to work your whole life, Melinda. So I hear you. We've got, and I empathize with you. That must make me, make you feel like you're really stuck. So ultimately that led to us both leaving Nike. I met her there and starting this practice. And then we've been using that in our life planning uh, work too, because, you know, you've got to, you've got to really hear and then, you know, and then go back and a year later or six months later, Hey, you know, we announced this. Did you hear anything about it? What'd you think of it? What do you think? You know, what do you think about this program that we're doing here? Or, uh, or it could be a year later. But and you know, for us with our intentional life plan, Melinda and I every every first week of January go and look at our plan, and I'll turn to her and say, and she's an introvert, and I'll say to her, Hey, you know, how's your life going? Are you happy with your life? What should I know? And then I, you know, because she's an introvert. I have to shut up because I'm the extrovert, obviously, and I just need to let her talk. Melinda was doing what at Nike? Was she working with you side by side in PR? No, or? no, she worked above me. She literally worked on uh, three. You married up, me. huh? You married, yeah, married up. up. Nice. She was, well uh, she done, was sir. An assistant to a vice president who became CEO of Nike. A wonderful man named Mark Parker. So she worked for Mark for. 11 years. She was 21 years or 20 years at Nike. Wow. Um, executive, and, uh, executive assistant then to the CEO. Yeah, executive that, okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. Okay. So Lee Weinstein's reading list is blowing up here. So I will put everything <laughs> together, everything together, uh, when we, when we put up the show, but getting the love you want, get, getting love you want, but I got that right here. And that's, uh, that's Harville Hendricks, PhD, yep. a guide for couples yep. getting love you want. Yeah. Uh, okay, so your book, Lee, Write, Open, Act, mm-hmm. an Intentional Life Planning Workbook, if there's a definition for an organic piece after sharing this conversation <laughs> with you, this is it, baby. This yeah. is this is it. So you did the groundwork and boom, here it here it is. So and you alluded to it a little bit as you were talking about how you and Melinda maneuver through the ops for your company and mm-hmm. I would say not to make it sound real clinical, but the ops for your life as a, right. as a couple. Tell us about the book. I think the, the genesis, the story, the spiel that you have with the butcher paper is, is great. So maybe yeah. you can share that. Yeah. Well, so we got, we got married. Thank God she said yes. yes. I say that every morning. But one Saturday morning, uh, soon after we got married, about six months in, in 2001, she keyed downstairs and I had a big sheet of butcher paper on our kitchen island. And, and she kind of looked at me like, what in the hell is he going to do now? And uh, no, she was very open. Why did I say I yes? Said, why did yeah. I say yes? That's what yeah, she's why saying. Did I say yeah. yes. Why did I say yes? So I said, let's, can we just talk about our life and what do we want to do now that we're married and where do we want to go? And so we invented this process literally this morning where 
on the far left-hand side of the, of the butcher paper we wrote down 2001. And I turned to her and said, well, how long do you think you're going to live, Melinda? And she said, well, I'll probably make it till I'm about 84. We added that to the, the sheet, her expected death date. I, I figured I'd probably last maybe two to four years less than she. Lee, this is a woman who has to love everything about you that she comes downstairs first thing in the morning. Hey, Melinda, I I didn't hear it. You want some coffee or anything? How long do you think you're going to live? I would just, I'd stand in front of the knife drawer at this point and then call 911. Yes, yes, no. Bless her soul for agreeing to this. But we invented this thing that morning and she had, for some reason, had good humor. She probably had to go get some tea and come back. But then we numbered the years in between 2001 and whatever the the end date was we came up with and then we 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 put all the numbers down of every year and then we divided the decades up and then started adding in sort of dates like you know for me when did child support end for me um you know when was uh when were was our kid m going to be 16 and getting their driver's license when was sophie going to graduate from college or our youngest kid you know when were our parents going to be in their 80s because we'd want to be closer to our parents and then I had a, some sticky notes there. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And so we wrote some things down, like Melinda leaves Nike, uh, Lee leaves Nike, buy a farm in the Columbia River Gorge. And we just started dreaming these things. And then we, we hung that big sheet of butcher paper in our house, which is one of the key things to our methodology is we want you to see your life plan. And I'm looking at mine right now outside my office because, um, you know, life is short. Um, and we only, you know, get, are granted, you know, the average person I think lives in the U.S. to 78 right now. That's the average, but um, it's down a year because of COVID. Now we all saw those headlines. But what's fascinating, though, is now life expectancy is increasing. You know, you've got to have some flexibility in your life. So we have the sticky note. We started writing these sticky notes down. And if you go back and look at our original plan, you know, because we have this thing on our wall, we can go by and look and say, okay, you know, in 1992, what did we want to do? Well, we wanted to, you know, buy an RV, which I don't know if that was the exact year, but we did buy one. We no longer have it. But, you know, we wanted that for our kids to come visit and play and, and, and travel around in. It's a really neat process. It's what this is, is, I mean, ultimately, and I love your bed of roses name for your podcast. But you know, ultimately, you don't want to be lying on another bed, your deathbed, at the end of life going, oh, I should have gone to Paris. As the wonderful uh, poet Mary Oliver said, you know, what do you want to do with your one wild and, and precious life to that effect? Excuse me, I should have the exact quote. Was it Mark Twain who said, you, you'll regret the things that you didn't do and not the things that you did? Something right. like that. I'm also butchering that, but it's that, that, that's that's true too. Yeah, um, yeah. So she said, "Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?" I mean, you know, we don't know what happens to us at the end of this mortal existence. Uh, um, you know, do we do we go off and are we reincarnated? Do we go to heaven or hell, um, or do we become compost? We have this existence. You know, what is it you want to get done here? I know. Have you, have you wanted to learn French? Um, have you know? Do you want to do a different job? Do you want to own a house? Do you want to go back to college and finish your degree? We call these life goals. What are the What are the really big things? I mean, we have a lot to do every day, and and in this pandemic, you know, you know, we got to put food on the table, and we've got to get our kids online on class, and we've got to deal with our own headspin of being locked up for almost a full year. Ultimately, we're going to move out of this. You know, we can use the time we've got, we've had during this pandemic and what's left of it. Uh, but ultimately, you're going to come out of it. And what do you, what do you want to do? And what do you need to make that happen as well? So we had a, uh, one of our workshops in Portland a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, we talked to people and, and basically asked them, and it was fascinating, how many of you have a, a financial plan? And we had about 18 people in the class and only three people raised their hands. You know, that's that's a key thing. You may have these great ideas, but, you know, what are you going to do financially to try to try to make them happen? And do you need a financial plan? Do you need a financial planner? Or can you go back to community college and take a great degree on or take a great class on investing? You've got to look at those sorts of things. Um, there'll be some infrastructure that's that's needed. But on the other hand, 
what's been fascinating from this process, we came up with this, this intentional life plan, we call it, that day. And what's been fascinating is we would occasionally update it. We do it every year. We update, not occasionally, but every year. Melinda and I meet every month and go over and either look at our plan on the wall or I keep copies of it in my iPhotos on my phone. And we can look at it and say, okay, what did we, what did we want to get done this year? You know, we want you looking at a plan. And what's been fascinating is we got a national survey done for us. We got to ask a free question uh, from DHM Research here in Portland. And we asked people how many people not only had a life plan, but a power of attorney and, um, and a will, for instance. And we learned from that that only 13% of Americans have a written plan for their life. And to me, that's, that's a huge motivator. It's like, if, if we can get that up to 14%, wouldn't that be great? Shouldn't everybody kind of have a plan? Some of us have them in our floating around in our heads. But then, you know, if it's not written down, will it happen? And if you go back and look at our original plan that we did in 1991, We've gotten 93% of those original sticky note goals are checked off. That uh, sounds mind-blowing to me, it, Lee. Yeah. It's called it, – well, there's a book out, another book. <laughs> another book. Stand by, another everyone. Okay. Write it down. Make it happen. So I went to Powell's Books based here in Portland. I was looking. Hey, has anybody done a, a life planning workbook? I mean, a really simple workbook like the ones we used to get when we were kids. You know, math made simple type of books. And there was not a workbook out there for people to do a life plan. Um, so we've written a really short 100-page uh, life planning workbook. But one of the books that stuck out to me at Powell's on a, on a visit was this book, Write It Down, Make It Happen. And the author of that posits that if just the sheer act of writing things down activates things, it activates neurons, it activates the universe, and it may sound a little airy-fairy, but it's amazing. And if you go back and look at our plan, I'm looking at it right now, we have checked off, like last year, one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten. Actually, this was 2019. We had 11 key things, 11 life goals on our plan, and we've got them all done. The one thing I would say, though, is the beauty of sticky notes is you can move them. Sometimes we don't get things done on our plan. So one of the things that we've had on our plan for years was for Melinda to talk to her mom about her wishes and will, uh, her end-of-life wishes. And that is a very uncomfortable conversation for most of us to have with a parent. And so that sticky note kept moving. I also had one on my of mine which was Lee take a class uh, and that kept moving also. So sometimes those things, some things that we never get to need to just kind of get nested and off to the side because maybe there's a reason you're not getting them. Did that need to be more specifically or exactly correct? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that, Jeff. So one of the things that we suggest to people and what's different about these as opposed to new year's resolutions is we really like the SMART goal formula. So we want your goals to be measurable and really uh, based in fact, really concrete. So there's a SMART goal evaluation. So it's like, take a class. Well, let's, let's take that further. Take a class when. So one of the things we want you to do with your, with your life plan is once you've got your goals for the year, break those goals up either, well, by quarter. Some of the, some of the goals you could get done in a quarter some goals like you know remodeling your home may take all year so you're going to have to break up actions within that goal by quarter and get after that but with take a class for instance like well when do you want to do that fall term spring term summer um what type of class where well let's break that down and and make it really measurable as opposed to the way the way it was worded lee this sounds rooted in Agile development on the tech side or Kanban, Mm -hmm. you know, on deck, Mm -hmm. doing done block kind of thing. Yeah. But that you've made it accessible. And the the book is is beautiful. The illustrations are wonderful. It's just it's it's friendly right away looking at it. So, because even in listening to you, I think. Oh, man, okay, I want to do this. I want to do yes. this. And yes. and my wife is my wife is incredibly organized and really yep. goal oriented and is a big journaler. I mean, we believe in the power Great. of writing, but she it actually does it. I talk about it, but she does it. Yeah. And uh, and so part of what uh, part of what I want to ask Lee, it sounds like you're as good as your partner on this thing, right? 
Well, you know, and th- that's a great question. What I would tell you is a couple things. So, so first off, this is a four-step process, um, and it starts with um, that soul searching. And I just got a really nice note from a woman who got the book who lives on the East Coast, and she's like, "Those opening questions are really good." You know, so it starts out with some really good questions, and it's a workbook, so you just write and get the workbook dirty. You know, what's your philosophy? Um, what what do you view your purpose here on earth as being? You know, what makes you happiest? What's not working in your life? So some questions like that. And we really want you to sort of access um, your soul first. And what I would tell you is that there, there are a couple challenges in this. Some people, for some people, those questions are too hard. Uh, and the one two-star review we got, everything else is five stars on Amazon, but the one guy who gave us a two-star said that, he said basically said the questions are too hard. And that uh, connected with me and my heart. It's like, oh, I could, I could see that. I hear that. And one of the things that um, Rilke, uh, to go back to Letters to a Young Poet, says is, is you know, sometimes you have to live the questions in your heart. You may not have the answers right now, but you need to just live with them, bring them up, write about them as your wife and you do and in, in your journaling. And through that process of, of accessing your soul, hopefully one day you'll come up with the answers to that. So there's, there's A, there's that. B, one of the big challenges with this, one of the, so when we did that survey, we got some fabulous responses from people and we asked them, you know, for those of you who have a life plan, you know, how does that help you? What, what's, what's good about it? And one of the things um, one person wrote is um, most people spend more time planning a one-week vacation than they do their life. And it's really true. We, get, we are so busy. We have so many things that distract us. Um, it's so hard to do if we're in our own home. Because, you know, we, we've got all these things we could go do that, you know, as opposed to uh, working on a life plan or sitting and talking to one's spouse or best friend, um, hopefully both, you know, coming up with answers to that. And, you know, kids have got to go places, people calling, all of that. So creating a really sacred space um, and time out to do that. We do these workshops where we and the, and the, the most successful workshops is where people can get away. Um, and go to a hotel, be, join us there for the workshop, and uh, spend a night or two um, and talk. You know, if, if you're a couple or if you're there with your best friend, you know, talk to each other about about these uh, these things. Some spouses refuse to to participate, and because it, it doesn't fit with their view of life. Um, you know, some people don't think. You know, some people think life should just happen, and that's fine. But some some people uh, just think, you know, God, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to do it. We had we had somebody back in that Portland workshop that joined us whose uh, spouse absolutely refused to, to join. The question they asked was, "What do I do now?" And we said, "Well, do your life plan. This is your life. Um, it's not necessarily your spouse's life. But take it back when you're done and share it with your spouse." See, this um, is this is the thing, Lee, that. It's always in doing the work, right? We're so we love talking about it, but it's 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 the doing because you're going to uncover some nasty stuff, perhaps, or you're going to have to come face to face with some things that you may. I mean, look, death right out right out of the gate yep. there, right? I've got yep. you weren't right. I mean, you what I you know the problem with you, Lee, is you're not direct, and so uh, you know. Good morning, Melinda. How long do you think you're going to live? Is just classic, and, and that really says it all. But to have to to screw up the courage to even address this with yourself and and then you know including a partner in it it's a i i think it's a big deal so that guy's saying hey these questions are too hard man i i get it you get it yeah that is life i mean life can happen to you as you alluded to or we can have we can have our hand on the tiller a little bit there's probably a lot of discussion as to how much control we actually have Right now, because of COVID, the seminars are yeah. are on hold, right? But yeah. everybody, yeah. there's lots of optimism brewing now. Knock yeah. wood that yeah. that will be out and about summer or you know end of right. this year, and 2022 will be a different story. So we have that to look forward to. Yeah. One thing, just to, I want to go back to the woman I was talking about, yeah, whose uh, whose uh, husband refused to participate. One of the things that was so great, she did go back and share her plan with him. Um, and last year or year before last, I guess it was, she sent me a picture of, um, of him at the Panama canal 
with her. While he wasn't participating um, in the process, um, uh, you know, and in the workshop, you know, my hunch is that he got to look at her plan and say, you know what, I'm going to go to Panama with you. Or, oh, that's, you know, know, and and that is fine. I mean, again, if you're married, you you have two two lives. Um, Your kids may want to look at your plan too, by the way, which is interesting. But, you know, ultimately this is about your life, Jeff, and it's also about your wife's life. And you have a life together, but, you know, and some things you may decide to do together. Um, you know, my very good friend, Chris, you know, wanted to go ride his, with his buddies on a, a motorcycle through Patagonia. Um, his wife absolutely did not want to do that. And, but you know what? If that's one of his goals, he ought to go do it. Um, his wife ought to, ought to uh, enable that. Um, I, I like the story of the couple making it to the Panama Canal because it sounds like if you just baseline us at, you know, uh, so we're 100%, 50-50 each, each yeah. partner, right? But we're yeah. baseline at zero, right? At least we, yeah. We've done nothing. But, yeah. It, yeah. but you accomplish that, you're 50% better already. By yeah. one person just initiating this, and who knows? Maybe yeah. it's it sounds like it's it's a bit contagious in a good way, right? That he said, it, "Hey, it I didn't know you wanted to do that," or "That's cool." Yeah. And then, consciously or subconsciously, you move towards that because you have actualized it by putting it in writing, posting it. I mean, these are positive steps, as difficult as they may be. Yeah. They are positive steps, and then you can yeah. you can manifest this, maybe consciously or subconsciously. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, and again, part of what you're doing is you're activating the, the universe. Um, and, you know, I can go out here literally and look at our plan and say, okay, what do we else, you know, have done? What do we have on our plan this year? I mean, number one on our plan is vaccine. Um, so we're, we're keeping that in, uh, in mind. But, you know, one of the things that's on our plan is do we want to hike the Eagle Cap wilderness with our eldest kid and their partner? Um, and so we, you know, we're, that means we probably need to have a conversation with M pretty soon about, Hey, do you guys, you know, how do you feel about travel? Is that's going to happen? Um, you, do you think you and Alex might want to, might want to come out, you know, end of summer and we'll, we'll go do this hike. Um, or do we want to move that sticky note to next year or, or five years from now? And that's the nice thing about the stickies is we can move them. The other thing we do with the plan is we, when we check off our, our life goals that we get done every year, we always want to keep them readable so we can go back and look and, and, and feel good about, you know, what did we do with our time here? And, and are we, did we use it valuable? And I can go back and look at, you know, 2018. And it said, you know, Sophie and Steve's wedding in North Carolina, that was our youngest kids wedding. So that was one of our life goals for 2018. Um, and Palm Springs was on there. We'd never been to Palm Springs in our life. So we thought, let's, let's try going there. So, so you have a sense off. of accomplishment when you see these things yeah, ticked off. You do. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, and in, in, again, you're back, uh, back thinking about, you know, I didn't go to Paris. It's like, well, Gosh darn it, put it on a sticky note, put it on that plan. I love it. Want to get to Paris? Put it on a sticky note and put it on that plan. And to think it all started with that sixth grade newspaper with Scoop Weinstein hunting and pecking on his father's typewriter. Lee's spirit and style of transparent, informative, and positive communication has served him well across a diverse and rich career. We'll have Lee's inspired reading list posted along with the show. Thanks for hanging with Lee and myself today. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Until then, stay safe. And remember, you'll find no bed of roses wherever you find fine podcasts. And now on YouTube, at No Bit of Roses podcast. Thanks again. See you soon. Bye.